So if you look at Genesis 14, we really have the first battle uh, or part of a war that's described in Scripture. Um, if you've read the first uh, 12 verses, if you're one of those good students who read before you came to class, then, then um, I might disappoint you a little because I'm not going to read the first 13 verses. I, what I want to do is I want to give you the setting and what takes place in those because it's nothing but a bunch of pronunciations of kings and countries and, and I think it's a, just easier to let you see even on the screen. Uh, I want to just, let's throw the map up one, one time just again so we see the journey that Abraham uh, has taken from the call. I know it's small but that red arrow that brings them down into southern um, Judea. And so that's kind of where this is all still taking place. Most of Abraham's life is down around Hebron and, and some of those areas in southern uh, Israel. But um, we'll go ahead. Um, let's think of these four things, I think, as I looked at the passage. Uh, four things, facts, I think, from Scripture we need to consider. And the first is this. I want to see Abraham rescue Lot. That's really uh, what's taking place in this particular passage of Scripture. His nephew's in trouble, and he's going to his aid. The second is uh, God gives Abraham victory. And so we're going to look at this battle that takes place, and just a few, I think, key points to how we face difficulties in our life, whether it be spiritual battles or whether it be uh, physical battles that we're facing, whether it be in relationships or finances. Uh, in all those areas, we, we see kind of an outline of how we need to approach and address those areas in our life. Uh, next, we were introduced to this guy, Melchizedek, who's somewhat of a mysterious figure throughout Scripture, whether he's a prototype of the Lord Jesus Christ or whether it's a Christophany, other people may say. We just know that uh, he, we're introduced to this king of Salem, which, by the way, later becomes Jerusalem, um, and so we're introduced to him, and I, I want to look at Hebrews just a little to show you the connection that's made between Hebrews and what's stated about Melchizedek in Genesis chapter 14. And, uh, and so the setting. Now, this is pretty The kings of Shinar, Eleazar, Ilium, and Gom um, are going to war, going out to battle with the kings of Sodom, Gomorrah, Admai, and Zeboam. Uh, they win, they defeat this group, and as they defeat these cities, they go and they plunder the cities, they take all of the possessions there, and one of the possessions that they take happens to be Lot. They take Lot, all of his servants, all of his possessions, uh, after as spoils of war, so to speak. And uh, the kings of Shinar, as they go out, uh, this takes place around the Dead Sea. So uh, if you're reading scripture, it's going to say that it takes place near the Salt Sea, or uh, um, and so this is the Dead Sea where they're actually at. So if you, you can look in any of your Bibles, you can look uh, on any map and see where the Dead Sea is. And this is where these kings are fighting. We can still go there today. It's interesting. So this is the setting. So all those kings and all those nations that we're not going to read about, it's important for me to at least mention them in the context of what's taking place. And so we have these nations that are fighting against one another. And, and the first uh, list of kings win. And now news comes to Abraham, and this is where we start in God's Word. In verse 13, news is coming to Abraham about what's happened to his nephew Lot. I'm in the CSB, and so it should be up for you. Um, it says this, One of the survivors came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who lived near the oaks belonging to Mamre, the Amorite, the brother of Eskel, and the brother of Aner. They were bound by a treaty with Abraham. When Abraham heard that his relative had been taken prisoner, he assembled his 
318 trained men. Now, I'm not sure how many soldiers that these kings have in their armies, but we're talking about five countries essentially here, and all the spoils that they've gathered, and all the, uh, the people they've picked up that now will be fighting for them. And here Abraham is with 318 trained men. I think it's important to notice these men are trained. These aren't just 318 random farmers. or uh, They're trained men. These men, Abraham has trained his men so that if there comes a time that he needs to defend himself or his property, then he has men ready to go to war. I think that's something we need to understand. It's too late to assemble yourself and to prepare yourself for a battle once the battle begins. And it's very, very interesting here that Abraham has prepared for battle even before we've even mentioned or have heard of a battle in Genesis. And so if you're facing things today, then yeah, you're scrambling, trying to get things right, praying for you. God can God will still work in your circumstances, in your situations. But if you know you have things that are going on in your life that are going to result in battles, then start now. Begin preparing now. Train yourself now. So that when, when the hour of desperation comes, you're ready. All right? You can't get ready in the hour of desperation. You better be ready in the hour of desperation. 318 trained men born in his household. And they went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he and his servants deployed against them by night. Defeated them. And so uh, we see some strategy here. Actually, I guess for, for those of you who are military men have served in a... Abraham's strategy is to go in at night and to split his men up so that they can attack from all sides. I'm not a military man. I've never served. But, but this is the first military uh, or combat situation we find in Scripture. As far as Dan, he his servants deployed against them at night defeated them. And he brought back all the goods, also his relative lot, and his goods as well as the women and the other people. Now, this is where we kind of are introduced to Melchizedek. And I kind of want to work through all the, the verses and the passages so that we can just then discuss these in a little more detail. But Melchizedek comes and he blesses them. So here, Abraham brings back all the, the plunders of war from those who had taken them from the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and, and that group of people. And in this group of kings, there's a king who comes out that's identified as Melchizedek. And Melchizedek does something for Abraham. And so in verse 17 it says, After Abram returned from defeating Chedorlaomer, or Mir, I'm sorry, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the Shavah Valley. That is the king's valley. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest to God Most High. This is El Elyon. The Most High God, the, the God that's in charge of everything. And so this is unique. Why is this unique? Because nowhere throughout the culture or even in the history of Israel do we find a king who is also the priest for his people. There's something unique about Melchizedek. Brought out bread and wine. He's a priest to God Most High. And he blessed Abram and said, Abram is blessed by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who is handed over your enemies to him. And then there's this little tag at the bottom that says, and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. And so in this passage of Scripture, we not only see the first battle, but we also see the first tithe. Not the first offering, but the first tithe, the first giving of 10% of everything. 
This is important. When we get to Hebrews, we find out what? That, that Jesus is like Melchizedek. So the tithe was paid. The tithe was given to Melchizedek. That's before the law. And so this was instituted before the law came into place. Then the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people, but take the possessions for yourself. This might look like a, a pretty good situation, right? Uh, the king had taken all the gold and all the silver and all the wealth and all the people from these uh, kings they had defeated. Now Abraham is bringing them all back and the king just says, just give me my people. You, you've went to war, you've put your life on the line, just give me my people and you can have all the possessions. We talked about last week, Abraham had already gotten himself in a little trouble with possessions, right? Last week, he goes down to Egypt and, and he receives all these possessions while his wife slash sister is in the Pharaoh's home. He picks up a maidservant there, handmaiden by the name of Hagar. And so many possessions that when he and Lot come back into the land of Canaan that the land will not support them anymore. And now he's being offered the possessions of the kings. It may seem pretty enticing. But Abram said to him in verse 22, to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand in an oath to the Lord, God, most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that belongs to you, so you can never say, I made Abram rich. And make sure you understand, this is what Abraham is essentially saying. Uh, I'm not going to depend on the wealth of man. I'm going to depend on the Lord God who has called me to this place so that everything good that happens to me, everything I own, every blessing I receive is a blessing from God, not from a king. Abram makes one exception. He says, oh, while taking nothing except the servants have eaten, they, they ate, right? So they, had, they used some of the plunder and they ate. And then finally he says, but as for the share of the men who came with me, there should be a space there, they can take their share. So it's 318 men. He, he leaves it up to them. If you want to take part, if you, want, if you want some of the plunder, if you want to take what the king's offering you, then take what you need, take your expenses, take what it is you feel you've earned. But as for me, God called me out of the land. God told me where I would go. When I get there, God's going to tell me to stay. And so I'm just going to depend completely on God. I just want to tell you, that's a scary thought. I read this one passage, I read this one chapter, and there, there's so much in it that I was kind of all week trying to, to figure out, God, which way do you want me to go? Do you just want me to mention every single thing there is and how, how that could apply? Do you want me to focus on one or two things? And so I'm going to do my very best um, to cover it in a, in a way that is logical and makes sense and is easy for you to understand and in a way that maybe you'll glean something that we've never gleaned before as God speaks to our hearts and minds. So the question uh, we, we might ask to begin is, um, why didn't Abram or Abraham keep the spoils of war? And, and I've already given you kind of the simple answer. Uh, first, because they came from a sinful source. Think of where the, the money is coming from. It's the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, who's offering the wealth. We, we, we later learn a lot more about Sodom and Gomorrah and what those cities are like. Abram already knew what they would have been like. And so Abraham considered the source. 
I would suggest to you that we always look to the source in our life. Someone wants to give us a leg up, a, a, a handout, but somebody wants to contribute, then we consider the source. Is this a goodwill gift that someone's offering? Somebody offers to do something for you? It, it's, it's important to know the source. There's been, been times, maybe not in your life, but, but in my life where I didn't consider the source, and later, because I had accepted something from someone, a service, a good, that they expected something back from me that I didn't know at the time they were going to expect from me. Abram looks ahead, Abraham, and says, I, I know the source of this money, and it's evil. I know what takes place in the city and what the city is like, and I cannot be held accountable to those men or to the cities or to the kings. So I'll be accountable to God and God alone. I'll take what God gives me. The second would be this, because he doesn't want to align himself with the kings of those countries that have been defeated. Remember that Abraham's not going to war. He's not going to battle because some kings of Sodom or kings of Gomorrah were defeated. He went because his nephew had been taken, had been kidnapped. That's why he went to battle. I would ask you this question. There's some things worth fighting for, amen? And there's some things not worth fighting for. I think one of the signs of maturity in the life of a believer, in the life of even just a young person, is the ability to know the difference between what is worth fighting for and what's not. The means about which we go, handling circumstances in our life. The third reason uh, why Abraham kept, did not take part in the spoils of war because he knew that God was enough. Not, not to, I'm, yeah, I'm going to share this. I don't think, I'm not going to use anybody's names. But when, when COVID first hit, and it had us all scared, not just, not just physically scared, but, but also financially worried. You know, how, if we shut our churches down, how are we going to financially be able to continue to do ministry? And so... Uh, some, like me, worried about that. Right. I'm just showing you, I'm just telling you the truth. Like I was worried, like I was a little concerned, I was a little scared. This is how my family eats. You understand, if, if the church can't pay its bills, that means I don't get paid. I'm a biller. And so I was really concerned and just worried that, that God, you know, and so... Then the government came along. The government did something very beautiful. They offered, even to the churches alone that would be completely forgiven if it was used to pay employees. And at first it sounded really good. At first several churches were looking into this all, all around. And I was concerned. And so we came together, the finance committee and, and other committees, we talked and said, is this something we should look into? And... Uh, there, there were some who took a bold stand and said, we don't need to depend on the government for finances. God will take care of us. It wasn't your preacher who said that, by the way. All right, I'm, just, I mean, I'm just telling you the truth. We don't need to depend on the government. God will take care of his church. And there are other people who are out there that need this, and we don't want to take it from them. It's important to understand the source 
Are we going to align ourselves with government, big government because we're taking money from our government? This seems to be, could cause a quagmire later on down the road. If, we, if we're taking money from the government, then the, the government now can have a little bit of control and authority within the church. I left that meeting. I got a call from someone. I left that meeting. I stopped by the house. They told me they wanted me to stop by and pick something up. And I'll just tell you that someone gave um, a couple thousand dollars in the envelope when I left that meeting to give to the church. That was God's way of saying to, to me, I got this thing. I'll take care of the church. It's my church. Just be faithful. Abraham did not want to be aligned. And he knew that God was enough. God would take care of him. He didn't need the plunder of war. He, he didn't need the money from evil sources. Also, he didn't want Sodom or Gomorrah to get any credit for what God had done. So rather than aligning himself with these other kings, he separates himself by saying, no, I won't even take the plunder of war. This is an oath I made to God. God's the one who delivered us in this battle. God's the one who gave you your stuff back through what we've done. It's not the kingdom. It's not the alliances of kings. It's God who's handed the kings into my hand. Because he wanted God to receive the glory. Can I just tell you that when we're fighting battles in our life, whether they're spiritual, whether they're physical, whether they're financial, whatever they may be, that our hope should always be that God's glorified through that battle. Make sure you hear what I'm saying now. You might not like it, but this is good theology, okay? We're going to face troubles and we're going to face trials. There's some we're just hard-headed we get ourselves into. I'm not talking about those kind. I'm talking about the kind where we've done nothing whatsoever to contribute to the situation that we're in and we're really struggling. Our number one goal should be, even in the midst of this trial, even in the midst of this pain, even in the midst of this circumstance, God, I want you to deliver me, but most of all, I want you to be glorified. Which brings about this thought, if suffering brings God glory, am I willing to suffer for the glory of God? And only you can answer that question. If my present suffering brings glory to God, do I accept my present suffering? Is it a good thing? Is it, as Scripture says, is it working out an eternal weight of glory in my life? So that the burden I feel here cannot even compare to the glory that we'll feel on the day we stand in the presence of Jesus Christ? Four things about the fight. Is the fight worth fighting? There were some things Abraham needed to work through. There's some things we need to work through when we face difficulties in our life, whatever the problems may be. The first is this. We've got to always consider there is dangerous in compromise. I don't know why it deserved a 1.1. Um, it should just be one. See, Lot had compromised. Last chapter, Lot looks out. That looks good. It's in the city. I think I'll go live it up. And Lot moves to the areas of Sodom and Gomorrah, which puts him directly in the crosshairs of this war that's about to take place. Had Lot not chosen the easy path, the worldly path, the fleshly path, he wouldn't have been there to be kidnapped in the first place. 
Abraham could have looked and just said, this is not a fight that I need to fight. He should have known better. I would say this is a question that's legitimate in every battle we go through. God, has there been compromise in my life? Have I compromised some things and this is why I'm facing the battle? Or God, is it someone else who's going through the battle? Did they compromise something? Because if there is, then we want to help, right? But we, we need to make sure we deal with the issue of compromise. Then there's the loyalty of love. Abraham loved his nephew. How do we know? Because when God called him out of the land he was in with his family to go to a land God would show him, he took his nephew with him. Many of you know and you understand there's something different about family, right? Don't mess with my family. Everything you say about them may be true, but don't say it. Don't mess with them because we will have a problem, right? All of us, I'm not, I'm not saying me, I'm saying that's the way we are. We understand this loyalty of love. But we've got to ask the question, is it really loving them to fight their battle? Now this is difficult, only you can answer this. Is it really loving that person to get them out of the jam they're in? How many of you know what I'm talking about? Just shake your head. You're not on Facebook Live, they can't see you nodding. Right? I think dad may be watching online and, and dad had to go to jail one night for driving and having a just a bad attitude with the cop. And my grandfather didn't bail him out. He stayed the course. If it would have been one day, two days, a week, he was going to stay in there. My grandfather saw in that circumstance, I'm not bailing him out of this. In fact, this is probably good for him. And then there's this, the importance of preparation. When we're going to fight a battle, we better be prepared. We talked about Abraham has 318 fighting men. All, right. all these other kings, you understand, they just brought all their subjects together. Let's fight. They're, they may have an army. They may have some that are trained, but it's, all right, go get the boys out of the field. We're going to war against the kings of Sodom. And yet Abraham has 318 men ready to fight. Don't look over that. Don't look over the fact these were 318 trained men. I don't know. Maybe they were like Marines in Abraham's day. We're going to deliver them, drop them 318 off, and they're going to you know, destroy all those kings and bring back all the plunder war before we wake up the next night. Specially trained men. The Bible makes sure we see that. Have you prepared for battle in your life? We, we talked at the beginning, listen, it's too late once the battle comes. It's too late once the fighting begins. It's too late for wishes, right? Man, I wish I had... Or even... It's too late. Abraham didn't know that Lot was going to be taken, and yet Abraham had trained his men for whatever he needed for protection, to guard what God had given him. We need to be prepared. And then the last thing, friends, we need to have the courage to fight when it calls for it. When the battle calls for fight, when we've weighed the cost, when we've looked, when we've asked, what's the compromise that led to this? Is there loyalty of love? Am I being so loyal to someone that I'm blinded by the situation? Or do I see the situation clearly and this is something worth pursuing? Am I prepared? 
And then you've got to have the courage to do it. You've got to have the courage to stand on your convictions. Now, there were some things I, I wanted to show you, and I, I want to just share a few without going real in-depth through Scripture because I really wanted to take you through Hebrews. And, and tonight, um, I, Ivan Parker's tonight, right? So we encourage all of you to go see Ivan Parker if you want to. Um, I'll do my, my Bible study uh, on Facebook Live, and you can watch it after or tomorrow or uh, just watch it. I can see who watched it. I want you to see Jesus in the Old Testament. I want you to know that as we go throughout Scripture, that all throughout the Old Testament, we see aspects of the one that's going to come. Right? I mean, we can go all the way back to Genesis 1, we see Christ. We can go to creation and the fall of man, and we see Christ. We go to the uh, flood. And even something like an ark that preserves God's people, that brings deliverance to God's people, we see pointing us to something bigger and better than that covenant. Christ is everywhere and all throughout the Old Testament. And in this case, it's amazing that we, we, we find out about Melchizedek, this king of Salem, this, this priestly king, that Hebrews goes into a little further detail on, this king that doesn't have an end or beginning. This king who doesn't really have a father or mother, there's no origin that we're told of. This king who is going to reign forever, in essence, an eternal reign. The king who's going to offer sacrifice on our behalf. And here's what I need you to see, because I think this is awfully important. Abraham doesn't go to Melchizedek and offer him 10% so that he might be blessed. Rather, He's blessed, and as a result, the natural outflow of being blessed by God, knowing the Lord Jesus Christ and all that He's paid on our behalf, how in the world can we think 10% is too much to give? This isn't Mosaic law. This is, here's Melchizedek. Abraham recognizes that after he's blessed, right, 10%, I'm giving a tithe. Hebrews tells us Jesus is of the order of Melchizedek. His reign is like his. He's priest and king. He offered the ultimate sacrifice. He has blessed us. So if Melchizedek deserved a tithe, does Christ, who Hebrew says, is better? He's not after the order of the Levites. He's not like the descendants of Aaron. And so what has been commanded to be given to the Levites? What has been commanded to be given to the priest? It all passed away when he became our high priest. And now he's of the order of Melchizedek. I would encourage you to check that out. It's the beginning of the tithe. A kingly priest. Just think of that. Someone who reigns eternally. Someone to whom there is no equal. Someone that you can take every single problem you have to. Someone who will mediate between you and God. This is what a priest does, right? 
A priest mediates between the people and God. As New Testament believers, who is our high priest? Jesus. Why? He mediates between me and God. He fills in the gap that we are void of. He's our substitution, propitiation. It's, it's because of what he did on the cross that we can even approach the throne of God. And approaching the throne of God, we do so knowing that we have a high priest who mediates between us and God. We don't need a line of priests because this priest is priest forever. We don't need another king because Christ is an eternally reigning king. And we see this all the way back in Genesis 14 through this figure that kind of shows up and goes away and then shows up again in the New Testament. Melchizedek, king of Salem, king of Jerusalem, reigning as king, serving as priest. And that's the kind of savior we have. We don't serve a savior who only, although he's sovereign, right? Say with me, he's in control of everything and has control of all things and his will's done. But we don't serve a king who thinks his only Duty is to reign over us, even though he does. But we have a high priest who mediates for us. Now this ought to humble us. As sovereign as he is, and he's sovereign over all. He's in control of all. He's all-powerful and all-knowing, and all things have been given to him. And yet even in that position, it's declared that he's our priest. That, that he'll mediate between us and God. When you read Philippians 2 and the Christological passage about what Christ is like and the humility of the mind of Christ, that he would take on flesh and come live among us and suffer for us, beaten, nailed to a cross. He didn't think being equal with God at that point was something to be grasped but emptied himself. This beautiful Greek word, kenosis, to empty oneself. That's the kind of Savior that we have. Do you understand that? Like we could have a Savior who came and did all that Christ did, who just demanded, this is what you do. I don't have any more dealings with you. This is the rules. Follow them or uh, it's not going to turn out so good. We, we have a high priest in Jesus Christ. Not just king, though he's kingly, but a priest I don't, I don't know that we can, I don't know how to say that in such a way that we can fully grasp the offices of Jesus Christ. No doubt he's king, but he's also our priest. He cares. Not only does he care, he, he empathizes and knows what we suffer. We have a high priest who knows how we suffer. Not just from a knowledge point, not because he's heard about it, because he experienced it. Everything you ever feel and anything you ever face, when you take it to Jesus Christ, he knows exactly how you feel. Man, you can call me and we can meet up and you can tell me all that you're going through and I can hear it and I'll listen. 
But I can't change your circumstances, and I certainly can't fully understand how you feel. Just do like this. You know what I'm talking about? When you've had a loved one or a friend or someone who's suffered loss, and you just don't even have the words to say because you don't know what it is they really feel. You may have suffered loss, but you didn't suffer this loss. You may have went through these things, but you didn't go through that thing. So I learned a long time ago to never say, I understand how you feel. Because I don't. Boy, I sympathize and, and empathize, and, and it hurts me that you hurt. But where I fell and where I fall short is where Jesus just begins. When you take it to Him, He knows how you feel. He knows what it's like. And so you have someone who's going to go to God on your behalf as your mediator who knows exactly what you're feeling. Who will have no problem expressing to his father exactly what needs to be mediated to him. And I don't want us to get over the fact. You know, several centuries ago, I guess, you know, a long time ago, the problem that, that the early church dealt with is we, we see Christ as divine, but we can't only see him as God and miss the fact that he came as a man. That's important. And I would submit to you that even as sovereign king of the universe, he's still our priest who knows and understands, who will take your problem and share it with the Father. Someone who will go between us and God. Aren't you glad you have Jesus? Aren't you glad? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to gather in your house to read your word. And Lord, there's so much that I couldn't even begin to, to share. But I pray that you take your word and that you honor the reading of your word today and you honor the hearts and the minds of those who are here and that you will speak to us through your Holy Spirit and bring understanding into our hearts and lives that we might apply this not only today but every day as we walk as children of the Most High God. Lord, we remember today those families who are struggling with the loss of a loved one and we lift them up again in prayer. Give them peace and comfort. And Lord, we open your altar for those who may want to come and pray, for those who want to pray right where they're at. Speak to our hearts. And if there's a decision we need to, to make, if there's something we need to do that you are drawing us unto, that you are, Lord, you're just speaking to our hearts, then I pray that we would uh, heed the call. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to play a video. You come and pray as you need to.